New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the spiritual awakening of the Italian Renaissance. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs, a specialist in comparative literature and the theory of symbolic mythic language. She served many years as chair and program chair in the board of directors of the Jung Society of Claremont, California. She also sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World, a book that won the Nautilus Silver Book Award as well as the Scientific and Medical Network Book Prize for 2019. She's also the author of The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Betty. It's so nice to be back with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. We'll be talking about one of the most significant periods in Western human history, the Italian Renaissance. I, recently, I was at the Vatican, and you, when you see the splendor, you can't help but be impressed with the enormous wealth and power that and creativity, artistry, that the Italian Renaissance represented. That's certainly true, and it is impressive. I think that um, that actually that grandeur uh, almost makes us forget uh, some of the activity of the church uh, during the Renaissance periods we've been talking about. Uh, certainly, the church sponsored art, but as I said last time, it had to be about one myth, one theme, and that changed during the Italian Renaissance. We could begin, perhaps, with a figure like Petrarch. He was sort of a bridge between the high Middle Ages that we spoke of in our previous interview and, and the beginnings of the Italian Renaissance. Yes, he is definitely that person uh, early on, and he worked for the church, and he was a, a great believer in the church. And it's ironic in a way that it was because he traveled for the church that he was actually able to find old manuscripts in Latin of the Greek culture. And it, it's just hard to realize what the church had done is that there were no texts uh, of the Greek culture uh in Greek or Latin, they had been destroyed by the church, and the few that still existed were not known or really discovered, you might say, by people in during the Italian Renaissance. It's just hard to realize how uh, completely the church had destroyed the classical culture, uh, and and there were many. Uh, attempts uh, with armies going into Greece to destroy altars and uh, mystery schools and, and text. So 
Petrarch was the person who, in traveling for the church, found these books, and he was so amazed that such a culture had ever existed, just little, what little he could find out about it. And he remained convinced that the human being could create that kind of culture again, and that it would be completely consistent with the church. Uh, he, he was a, deeply committed to the church, but he was so amazed that such a culture as the classical culture had ever existed, and he wanted to know more about it. I gather he wrote and worked during the 1300s and the 14th century, essentially, after the Albigensian Crusades that we spoke of in our previous interview, and uh, many of the other horrors that followed the awakening of the High Middle Ages. Yes. I wonder how many people understood what was happening with the Crusades. Uh, I wonder how many of them knew how few people ever even made it to the Holy Lands and how many were killed or starved. Uh, but the horrors of it, I, I can't imagine that they were really very well known. I could be wrong. But yes, he lived... He lived after and during, you might say, uh, things that the church was doing that now we are just absolutely horrified with. Well, another factor that led to the rise of the Italian Renaissance and, and is also related to the Crusades, I believe it was uh, in the year about 1204 that uh, a crusade was launched. It never made it to the Holy Lands. They got to Byzantium and uh, saw easy pickings there and conquered Byzantium. And uh, the Italians ruled Byzantium for a brief period. So at that time, they would have had some access to Greek culture. They did. And uh, this was the beginning of the Italian Renaissance, actually. And of course, from the point of view of Byzantium, they felt that that was such a, a, an ignorant and arrogant thing for the crusaders to do, is that here they were really part of that culture. They were a Christian, a Christian culture. And uh, Yet they, the crusade took place there. So what happened after that is that they didn't entirely destroy Byzantium. Byzantium continued to exist, but many uh, people went to Italy at that time and they brought the knowledge of Greek with them. Because as I said last time, uh, Byzantium never destroyed uh, Greek literature uh, or the Greek culture because they were started by the Greeks uh, from Megara uh, several hundred years really before Christ. So they they had uh, the text and they had them memorized as well. But many of the, them then after that crusade went to Italy and they taught Greek and they brought Greek texts, and they brought uh, the memory of those texts in their own mind. And many people didn't, I mean, no one knew Greek. In fact, anyone who had an interest in Greek was suspicious. Uh, but nevertheless, this was happening in Italy, that here they were, they knew Greek, and they were given positions in the university. So people were beginning to learn Greek and and find out, discover something about that culture, which really opened their minds in a way that hadn't been open for several hundred years. Because I guess we have to say that one of the great activities of the church, particularly during the Dark Ages, but undoubtedly even 
throughout the high middle ages was to stamp out any remnants of pagan culture, especially Greek culture. Yes, yes. Uh, pagan, <laughs> I, I, I always had to think about pagan culture. Of course, it included the folk culture, which, uh, certainly, uh, honored the earth and, and sacred rituals, uh, still partly a shamanic, uh, but what what the church really wanted to stamp out was the classical Greek culture, uh, all of it. But they really feared the Greek culture because they had achieved something so much, uh, so much that was admirable, really, and so much that made the church fear that it would lessen their power. And they absolutely wiped Europe clean, you might say, of that, uh, of that culture. It's really quite an amazing fact that, that a very vibrant culture that existed throughout all of Europe was pretty much completely exterminated by the church, except for all of these little underground threads that we will be discussing. Yes, yes. And that's why Petrarch was so shocked <laughs> and and excited. And it made him know that the human being has tremendous potential, which had been lost, that knowledge had been lost, and always subordinating ourselves to the church. So he he had he really was excited about what the human being could achieve. And this was a theme that was very uh strong during the Italian Renaissance. And of course the story is always told about uh, uh climbing the mountain, climbing a particular mountain from which he could view the beauty of the earth at vast distances, and that inspired him. And when I was younger, I didn't understand that. But when we think of the inability to see from the air <laughs> or to get a large view of the landscape, one would have to climb a mountain. And he, he was very impressed. That was a symbol for him of the potential of the human being. I love that. I've always enjoyed climbing mountains. Uh, the views are just magnificent. If uh, It's the next best thing to being in an airplane, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I guess when we get to the very heart of the Italian Renaissance, it has something to do, I think, with the rise of a merchant class, people who could finance artists and scholars independently of the church. Yes, that was a huge factor. Uh, certainly uh, in Florence, the de Medici's were a banking family, and they did just that, especially with Cosimo de Medici. He financed artists and made it possible for them to paint other themes other than what the church uh, would uh, sponsor, although the church did still continue to do so. But there was that other uh, kind of art uh, with the human body of the female and the male and nature. It was just sudden, even the sensuousness of the body uh, could be painted, which of course could not be before. So yes, this was... Uh, these banking families, and especially de Medici's, really uh, encouraged art and financed it so that people could follow their own artistic instincts. He also imported vast libraries, uh, in particular books in Greek. And I suppose the really central piece of this is the Hermetic texts. 
Yes, the Hermetic texts were very important. And uh, he actually had agents going around in uh, uh, in Byzantium and and in Macedonia, in various places, anywhere that texts could be found. And he was really a, a force to try to bring back this knowledge and these texts that had been destroyed. And of course, the Corpus Hermeticum was one of the most important for the Italian Renaissance, because here was the Hermetic text. It was about the uh, ancient Egyptian uh, death and rebirth rituals. It was written in Greek, uh, but when that came to Italy, it just ignited uh, uh, such inspiration. And here again was a text that was talking about inner experience, something that the church would not allow, that our own inner Gnostic experience. And of course, the church tried to kill off anyone who was, quote, a Gnostic, quote, because they were actually having their own experience uh, in the spirit world. That was not allowed. And here is a text that actually talked about that. And of course, it was very, uh, uh, a very strong and powerful text, uh, during the classical period, even and later, but um, people felt that it was uh, Hermes Trismegistus who had written it, uh, that it was ancient Egyptian, and it was. I think later in the 1600s, Isaac Casaubon uh, came out with a, a complete statement that it was not Egyptian; it was really Greek. It was written in Greek, and it was Greek. But now that we know more about the Greek uh, death and rebirth mysteries, we know that indeed it was rooted in those mysteries, but it was just written in Greek. But it was this text that inspired and ignited the Italian re- uh, Renaissance. Well, I think there's a very interesting paradox that I uh, found in your book, and it has to do with Plato. The idea that you quote the scholar Peter Kingsley, who looks at the pre-Socratic philosophers, and he basically suggests that this is a shaman mystic tradition, and that when Plato came along, he he was a rationalist, and and he sort of emphasized the rationalist portions and de-emphasized the shamanistic portions. But then when De Medici had his translator, uh, Ficino, translate Plato after he had already translated the Hermetic texts. He saw in Plato a continuation of the Hermetic tradition. So it seems as if Plato is, is sort of on both sides of the fence. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. And uh, different uh, periods will uh, see different sides of him. Uh, Peter Kingsley uh is very convincing in his research about the pre-Socratic philosophers. And when I was in school and studying the Greeks, I I kept looking for something that might be spiritual in the sense of shamanic, and I could not find it. But he retranslated a lot of the manuscripts, and he's very convincing that not only were these pre-Socratic philosophers uh, shamans, but they were powerful shamans and powerful healers, and a very, very interesting work uh, that he has done. And he really felt that uh, Plato had taken so much from the pre-Socratic philosophers, especially Parmenides, and yet he had eventually turned it around into a more rational side. And that did seem to be a side of Plato that he, maybe he was afraid even of that 
powerful other dimension of consciousness, but he certainly is uh, noted for being uh, the person who differentiated uh, rational consciousness from symbolic consciousness uh, and tended to uh, honor only the rational. Now, I think that he didn't stay that way, and I think it was actually probably later uh readers that saw in him only the rational, but certainly when it was uh, translated uh, after the Corpus Hermeticum, those trans- that translator certainly saw uh, the shamanic uh, dimension of Plato, for sure. And I think they did it chart as well. Well, it's worth mentioning that as the Hermetic documents uh, were translated into a- Italian, I gather, uh, by Ficino, that this had an influence throughout all of Europe. You could see it even in Shakespeare when he wrote The Tempest, a great play about magic and and alchemy, the uh, very strong hermetic influence in the English Renaissance, which occurred long after the Italian Renaissance. Uh, The hermeticism was still quite alive. Quite alive, and it will, after the Italian Renaissance wanes, it will be in the north, uh, that it will rise again. It was, these underground traditions didn't really have a chance to develop in the Italian, uh, Renaissance. It was a shame because there were those who were becoming aware of those traditions, and yet they couldn't, they couldn't survive in Italy, and it would be later. Uh, that it, these, uh, underground traditions would gain power and surface in the next uh, Renaissance, which is the Northern Renaissance or the Rosicrucian Renaissance. That's very critical, yes, and it, and, and thanks also to what happened in England. The Italian Renaissance is associated with the birth of a philosophy known as humanism, which I, I think uh, the idea of humanism, as I understand it, as distinct, let us say, from the philosophy of the high Middle Ages is, is to appreciate the physical world, the, the world of human beings. I think that during the high Middle Ages, there was a sense that the true reality was in heaven where the spires of the great cathedrals pointed and this earthly plane was a veil of tears that we passed through on our way to get to heaven. But the Renaissance seemed to change all of that. Yes, that was a great uh, opening and awakening in the Italian Renaissance. And I think that the 1300s and the plague had a lot to do with it, is that the plague during the 1300s killed one-third to one-half of the people in Europe, we're told. That's that's a, a horrible thing to think about. And we can understand that a little bit better now that, that we're experiencing COVID. Uh, and, and it was, the emphasis was shifted to now, uh, the human being. Uh, I think that the terrible deaths had a lot to do with it because there was a feeling let's live life now. But uh, there were other reasons for that. And it was the shift of realizing the human potential. I think the classical culture through Petrarch even had something to do with that is awakening to the here and now. The human being could achieve that again, or we could achieve more. And there were several uh, 
thinkers, philosophers uh, during the Italian Renaissance who really understood, wait a minute, the human being has the potential to understand the cosmos, like uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man who is standing in the square, which is a symbol of the man, but he fills the entire circle of the cosmos. And this was the consciousness that was coming uh, to uh uh, Europe, really, at that time, that we have potential. And of course, that's what our ancestors wanted us to know, is that we are immortal, we are creative, and we are divine. All of this didn't come back during the Italian Renaissance, but certainly the the experience of being in the physical world, the sensuousness of the body, and the birth of Venus, uh, Venus, or in uh, spring that Botticelli painted, it just a celebration of the human body, or in Michelangelo's David, I mean that beauty of the male body and the strength of it, and how he could he could conquer the world, you might say, with a slingshot. I mean, he was, it was a beautiful body and with full potential. And uh, I think that was a wonderful thing that happened is that, wait a minute, this life, this in time and space is also a glorious time. Let's live it. <laughs> you also point to some of the paintings in this period, such as uh, the uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo, where God transmits some form of a divine awakening to Adam just with the touch of a finger. Yes, that's so beautiful. Uh, I remember as a student going there and we're all lying on our backs looking at that. Uh, this was a wonderful work of art, uh, man and God. And God was giving man uh, the ability to be divine, to awaken to the full potential. And that was certainly, it's a wonderful symbol of the Italian Renaissance, our awakening to who we are. Remember that in the Nagamati text, Jesus said that I have not come to die for your sins or save you. I have come to remind you of who you are. And that was, I think, what was really awakened during the Italian Renaissance, that touch of the divine. You also point to some of the paintings of, of the Annunciation where Mary, the uh, female I, I think of Mary in many ways as uh, the church's effort to represent the female aspect of the Godhead. And in these paintings of the Annunciation, this is where the angels come to tell her she is going to give birth to Christ, that that those paintings express uh, in a similar way as uh, the painting of Adam on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the, uh, the idea of divine energy pouring into the human. Oh, I love that. That's very well said. Uh, yes, I was so f fascinated with the paintings uh, during the High Middle Ages, and of course, they're only about 160 years, and some of the painters in the High Middle Ages, late High Middle Ages, uh, had tremendous influence on the Italian Renaissance. And yes, Mary... Uh, I think she was actually made divine by the church or, uh, in the last century, but uh, she was certainly, it was the honoring of the feminine. There's no doubt about that in, in that way. And, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's another way of looking at that too, is that if we uh, remember from the high middle ages, 
uh, the Mary Mysteries, and those are not spoken of much, but at Chartres, that actually was a, a theme throughout the entire cathedral, is that the Mary Mysteries was awakening to the Christ within us, and everything in that cathedral was structured in such a way to help to bring about this awakening, so that when we stand in the middle of the labyrinth, we are exactly standing in the center of the rose window uh, above where Mary is with the divine child that has been born. So it was for us to realize that we can give birth to the divine child within us. And so it seems very interesting that in the high middle ages, these painters uh, painted the Annunciation. And here is this being, this Gabriel, angel Gabriel from... uh, from the divine, from the spirit that is standing before Mary, giving her the message that she is to give birth to a divine consciousness or child. And I love the one by Simone Martini in which it's just totally gold and the angel is there before her. So he has just arrived and she is rather startled looking at him, but there are golden uh, letters or words coming from Gabriel that go into her consciousness. And then uh, not only in his painting, but in many of the Annunciation paintings, there is a, a light, a, a beam, a very powerful beam of light that is coming from the cosmos and going into her mind. And of course, this is the Annunciation that she will give birth to cosmic consciousness, or in the historical sense, she will give birth to Jesus, who will have cosmic consciousness. But I think since cosmic consciousness was such a theme of the high Middle Ages and the painters that were moving even into the Italian Renaissance, that that theme, we can look at those paintings as a theme of the Mary Mysteries. (laughs) I think that's a wonderful name for them. The Mary Mysteries is that this divine consciousness flows into us and we conceive that that holy child within ourselves. I I love those paintings for that. Uh, Botticelli painted somewhere, Mary's almost shocked and kind of pushing away a little resistant. But uh, I think that sometimes that is true when one has these shamanic experiences of, of a consciousness that is so vast that it's, it almost at first makes us resist, you know, and, and then accept. Uh, the birth of a completely way of being in the world. But uh, I really do think that's a major theme that is carried from the high Middle Ages into the t- Italian Renaissance, whether it was unconscious or conscious, but uh, it, it had a hard time surviving. It could not really survive. Well, it seems paradoxical in, in the sense that uh, you say it could not really survive, but on the other hand, it can't really die either. It, uh, no matter how hard the church tries to stamp these things out or any other powerful institution tries to prevent people from uh, awakening to their own inner divinity, it, it seems to keep bubbling up. It's like, you know, divinity is something that humans cannot kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. Yes, that's a that's a, a truer response, uh, because uh, I like to call uh, that the blueprint that came from the shaman mystic cultures. They, and this is our, this is who we really are, and it doesn't die. Uh, 
uh, Pico della Mirandola, who was an incredible uh, person in the uh, Italian Renaissance, he really wanted to create a symphony of philosophies. He saw all of these uh, different uh, religious traditions as really working with the same realities, spiritual realities. And he wanted to bring alchemy uh, and uh, Kabbalah together. He wanted to bring several of these underground traditions together. And uh, so the interesting thing, I think it would have survived on the surface uh, of culture much better had v- had Pico been allowed to do what he wanted to do. But he uh, was so excited. He was only 23 when he wanted to do this. And he wanted to bring uh, the great philosophers throughout Europe to Italy, to Rome, <laughs> and uh, to discuss uh, their particular spiritual or religious points of view. And he wrote what is called 900 Theses. I'm thinking 23 years old. <laughs> and he wanted to have them published, so he went to Rome to have them published, and he had the conference scheduled. People would come, and together they would bring all of this out of the unconscious, you might say, not the way they would think of it, but uh, from the corners of Europe, they'd come together and they would create a symphony of philosophies. But uh, when he went to Rome to get them to publish them, of course, that was not going to go. The church stopped the publishing, canceled the conference, and put Pico in jail. And uh, Pico was just one of those rare individuals who was brilliant, uh, learned, of course, he'd studied in various places, and he wanted to bring it to the surface, and in that sense, he couldn't do it. Uh, he just was not able uh, to continue that work. And he's—it's. Uh, I, I look at uh, Pico as a symbol of what we often destroy in our culture. He was brilliant in the sense that every book that he had read, he could recite. He, he had a photographic memory and he spoke six different languages. And this, it was even told that he could recite Dante's Divine Comedy backwards. Well, that is a peculiar mind. But he was, if we had allowed him, if he had been allowed at that time to really bring those philosophers to Rome, to really allow them to express themselves, then that would have allowed uh, Kabbalah and alchemy to come up from uh, the underground a little bit better. And who knows what could have happened. But that was not going to happen in Rome. And it didn't happen during the Italian Renaissance. But it was awakened enough that when the Northern Renaissance uh, develops in 1600, then they, the underground traditions are surfaced and they really are able to come together in a different way. We should also talk about the Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition that surfaced, I think, in the, in the 1300s. It does seem to me that that is the rebirth of the first temple tradition, highly developed, probably by, uh, priests or rabbis in Babylon during the exile, and then the wisdom literature had been taken in 621 BCE. It had been taken to Egypt. And I think that this ancient Jewish uh, secret tradition was, uh, was nurtured underground, and then it came uh, out, you might say, into the public in, uh, in Europe. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I believe that that makes sense to me. Uh, as I recall, the the major p- 
publication at that time, although they didn't publish books then the way we do now, was the Zohar, which was a uh, a compendium attributed to uh, Rabbi Moses de Leon, uh, but there's a lot of controversy as to his sources and where the material came from. Some people say it was de Leon who actually uh, wrote it himself. If so, he was a great mystic, but he may have had access to, to many other earlier sources. He must have, uh, because the first temple tradition was remembered by Jews for for a very long period of time, uh, and other writings show that they had that memory and of how they looked at reality in a very different way from the Second Temple. And uh, they even wanted to give it birth again in, uh, in the Jesus tradition that was born, of course, in Judaism. I think uh, Margaret Barker uh, is convincing when she says that it was uh, the... Those who remembered the first temple tradition that started the the Jesus tradition and earlier works make it very clear that his the secret tradition that he taught was that. So it makes sense to me that this Gnostic uh, inner experience uh, that was so much a part of Judaism was developed, uh, certainly in Egypt, because that's where the wisdom texts were taken. Well, I gather that when the Zohar was made public. It, just like the Corpus Hermeticum, it spread throughout Europe, and certainly in Jewish communities, but the, many Christian scholars also took an interest, in, uh, such as uh, Pico della Mirandola, who, who wanted to synthesize Christianity with the Jewish Kabbalah. He certainly did want to. So, yes. And he also uh, had uh, the knowledge of the Dionysian, the Dionysus Areopagite, uh, that was in France. He had traveled throughout Europe. So Pico was aware of that as well, and uh, of the hidden tradition that Jesus had taught. And he just so wanted to bring it together. And uh, he was just stopped at, at every step, it seems. And he actually was poisoned when he was about 31. I understand that when he was imprisoned, it was Cosimo de' Medici who argued to have him released from prison. It suggests a real struggle from, between the, the wealthy banking and merchant class and, and the princes of the church. Yes, yes, the de' Medici's did uh, take uh, Pico and he got him out of prison and Yes, there was. There was the negotiations going on a lot between the church and the de' Medici's. That was quite, there were power struggles for sure, uh, and ways of, of, of manipulating each other. <laughs> but yes, they, they did, uh, encourage and save, you might say, Pico in a way. And, but, uh, since Pico was, was really stopped at almost every turn, uh, he became fascinated with Savonarola, who was a fundamentalist, a D Dominican. And, uh, and I think that had Pico been able to realize the breadth, the, the vast consciousness that he was just beginning to work with, had he been able to work with people throughout Europe, there would have been such a renaissance both within him and within Italy. But that was blocked. He could not do that. And, Instead, uh, he 
became fascinated with Savonarola, who saw the decay and the corruption in the church, and he also saw the corruption in the de' Medici's. But uh, it's it's interesting. I think that we can learn a lesson from our times from that, is that if we don't nourish the best in us, then the worst and the most restrictive can take over. And Savonarola really was... Uh, repressive in so many ways because he would have uh, teams of, of children really on the streets who would watch people and what they did and what they said and what they wore. And you'd have great bonfires of taking art from people's homes and burning it and, and mirrors and cosmetics and jewelry and anything beautiful should be destroyed. Uh, it's a, a kind of extreme that the human mind seems to experience if we don't really allow ourselves to be uncensored and explore all that is, which is what Pico wanted to do. And in a sense, I think that not only, I, they thought maybe the Pope had poisoned him, it's not sure, it could have been one of the de' Medici's even, but uh, he was poisoned, you might say, by the church. He was killed in that sense by not being able to be who he was. He could have been the real symbol of of the Italian Renaissance. I, I gather that people date the ending of the Italian Renaissance in the year 1527 when the city of Rome was sacked. And uh, it, it seems as if there was just incredible turmoil throughout Europe at that time with many petty states forming alliances and breaking the alliances and, and making war against each other. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, Vatican was in control of Rome, but the Holy Roman Empire was fighting the Vatican. And, <laughs> it, know. It, you know, it reminds me of the present era in in some ways in, in, in which a, a a rampaging army of soldiers who were angry because they hadn't been paid marched into Rome and sacked the city. Oh, it sort of vaguely reminds me of what happened a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C., when an angry mob broke into the U.S. Capitol. Yes. Yes, I think that it, it, it's similar. And I think that if we don't understand what what we need as individuals, what needs to be come, become conscious in us, uh, it will be very similar to what happened then with, I mean, that was really acted out, but it was also acted out with, uh, Pico, I think, that he was, his, the interest that he had, which would allow him to develop something meaningful for him, and I think for the world, for Europe, uh, was not allowed. And so what is it? that is needed here, that has not been achieved, that causes this kind of thing to take place. I think that is a real question for our time is not, you know, to take one side or another and, and beat it to death, but to say, what is it? You know, what ails thee in the, in the grail legend? You know, what ails thee? And to come, come to understand that so that we can allow people to, to achieve the best in them, uh, the vaster consciousness. It strikes me also when I look at this period of history and some of the other periods we've been talking about that one of the real enemies of this awakening of consciousness is warfare. Yes. Yes. Well, that seems to be uh, the bottom line of, of 
how not to resolve issues, just kill people. Yes, and it was really, uh, it seems to me such a horrible thing that the Roman church, who really had in its hands a sacred myth, uh, I, I don't think they looked at it in, in, uh, as full a way as they could have, but they had a sacred myth and they passed that on, but that they felt that that myth wasn't strong enough in and of itself. They had to kill everybody who didn't see it their way. It's a, a horrible statement about us, Western, the Western world, that we seem to do that. I mean, it's just, we have destroyed so many children and are doing it now by so many means, by sanctions or whatever. People are starving and, uh, and can't get medicine, can't go to school. Uh, so many things we're doing to destroy all of the, the children who could, could realize who they are. Well, that would be a sad note to end on, Betty. I wonder <laughs> if you have any. <laughs> yeah, can we find a better one? <laughs> well, we, maybe we could end on Leonardo da Vinci. He really did, was able uh, to create so many things and, uh, and to make known that he knew that we had a vaster potential and that how much he had achieved. Uh, Pico was a young guy who really didn't know, have diplomacy, you might say, or uh, he was sort of a little bit like uh, uh, Parsifal, <laughs> you know, knocking over things and, and, um, and making people a little angry with him. Somehow or other, Leonardo knew how to survive in that world, and he was creative, and he did give the world that sense of of who we can be. So I think that's uh, a better note to end on. Well, it's ironic because uh, Leonardo was a great painter. He was also a, a scientist, a student of the human body. Uh, as I understand it, he also invented various weapons used in warfare. Yes, yes, that's also true. Yes, he was, well, he is the Renaissance man. You know, that's what that means. He's involved in many, many different aspects of the human being. Well, that's what we associate the Renaissance with when we talk about a, a Renaissance man is the enormous capability that humans have within us, our, our potential. And, and certainly, if if the Italian Renaissance reminds us of anything, it's that, that, that we all have great potential if we can just unlock it. That's true. That was certainly the message of the Renaissance, and it brought back the classical world in a great uh, way, because when uh, the Ottoman uh, Turks overran Byzantium, uh, then there was a flood of people who came in who knew everything. The, it was gr classical Greece was still alive in their minds and in their text. And when they came to Italy, then finally that was the return of the classical world, uh, in its beginnings at least. So, uh, and that, uh, the knowledge of what we can really be. So it was a birth of that, rebirth of that. And it will, uh, it will re uh, continue kind of underground until 1600 and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Well, we shall have a future conversation, I hope, on the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. That would be a very uh, another important awakening to for us to remember. 
But I think there's there's another interesting parallel, uh, as you mentioned, Byzantium coming into Italy. I gather from your writing that the Italians welcomed the, this knowledge from not just the Greek culture, but even from the Persian culture and the Arab cultures that were surrounding Italy at that time, in Spain, for example, and in northern Africa, in Egypt. But at the same time, they looked down on those people. And it seems to me we have a very similar ambivalence today where we are the inheritors of global culture, but we think of ourselves as superior. Mm, I'm so glad you brought that up. That is a major theme. Uh, yes, Byzantium had much to offer, as did Persia, as did the Islamic cultures, uh, all the way to Cordova and Spain, and we talked a little bit about that last time, is that they had already discovered things and understood things uh, that uh, we only uh, came into later. And in Byzantium, for example, uh, as uh, scholars have pointed out, there were no inquisitions there. Uh, and uh, they didn't burn people at the stake. It was a different world. And women could have uh, the highest uh, positions. Uh, so it's, it's, they really had kept culture going, you might say. And, and of course, I'd mentioned last time about the Islamic culture. I mean, it was, they had achieved, uh, the equality between men and women and scholarship, as well as people from all over that, uh, world around them, uh, which we didn't recognize or teach. But we took what we wanted. And yet we didn't thank them. We didn't feel grateful. And we acted as though we were the superior ones. And that is a theme that really needs to be looked at very deeply because the sense of superiority and privilege that has been a part of Western culture, uh, the feeling that whatever we've achieved is the highest, no matter how many how many other cultures helped us to achieve it, is something that needs to be looked at. And I think that would help us to heal if we could acknowledge the greatness and the beauty and uh, the spirit of other cultures and how much we have gained from them. And that as as a human species, if we could work together and and be grateful for everybody's creative gift, and then we could recognize our own. But in order to really recognize our own, we need to recognize what has come from other cultures. And I, I did not learn that uh, about uh, these Byzantium or uh, the Islamic cultures in school. Uh, and I don't, you can't meet very many people who really have that uh, gratitude and knowledge of what we have achieved from them. So it is, it is a really important thing that we need to consider today. Well, that's an important note to end on, Betty Kovacs. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being with me. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's, it's an important time for us to remember. And I really look forward to having uh, further conversations with you because the more I read your book, The Merchants of Light, the more I come to appreciate how much intricacy and depth there is uh, throughout the whole book. And I know we're still, even after now, I think uh, four or five interviews, still just scratching the surface. So, Betty, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you so very much. 
And for those of you listening and watching, thank you for being with us.